Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative and where conservatism has been and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 82, we read Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered by E.F. Schumacher from 1973. Ernest Friedrich E.F. Schumacher was born in Bonn, Germany in 1911. He studied at Oxford as a German Rhodes Scholar and became a professor of economics at Oxford. He served as an economic advisor to the United Kingdom Control Commission in Germany, which aided the economic recovery of West Germany following World War II. For many years, he was the chief economist for Britain's National Coal Board. He died in 1977. All right, so small is beautiful. Schumacher says one of the most fateful errors of our age is the belief that the, quote, problem of production has been solved. Modern man does not experience himself as part of nature, but as an outside force destined to dominate and conquer it. Man relies on the capital provided by nature. This natural capital is now being used up at an alarming rate. My case, he says is that our most important task is to get off our present collision course of destroying nature. We must see the possibility of evolving a new lifestyle with new methods of production and new patterns of consumption. We need a lifestyle designed for what he calls permanence. Now, this is his main thesis. The book itself is a collection of essays, I gather. So it it is a little bit disjointed Mm -hmm. and it doesn't flow particularly well. Uh, But the the general theme of the book is that he small is beautiful is his way of saying we're on an unsustainable course because we're going to use up all of the resources in mother earth. As long as we're dedicated to this ideology of uh, economic growth into infinity, then we're on a dangerous crash course because it can't go on forever because our economic growth, the engine of economic growth is pulling resources out of the ground and that can't last forever. It's um, it's definitely an old school environmentalism that you don't hear much anymore, and and part of that is also his um, acceptance of some of the consequences of what he's proposing, which you also don't hear anymore. When he's talking about small is beautiful, he means we need to live smaller, we need to have less. You know, there's no uh, magic bullet, no Silicon Valley tech fix, not in 1973. It's all about uh, we're using up the Earth's resources, which is also sort of something you'd hear more in old-fashioned environmentalism than in the modern, you know, Green New Deal school of thought. Everything's getting used up. We're going to run out of everything. This was, you know, we were always about to run out of oil, right? Um, of course. Even, I mean, we hear that today. Remember, we were at peak oil a couple of years ago. Remember that? And then fracking got embedded. And, hey, we, we have a ton of oil. Too much of it. It was cheap. So it's, I mean, the the first part of the book is, like you said, it's 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 um some disconnected essays that are kind of taken in total. They're Schumacher's sort of worldview, but the environmental stuff in the, in in part one is, it's very uh out, it feels it feels old, you know. It's sort of it feels uh doom and gloom, and it 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 uh I don't think it really marches with the times anymore. What it does, I think, show is just how quickly. 
environmental fads come and go as the sort of what is what is animating the green movement because they're not into any of this anymore. You know, yeah. he's talking a lot. He's talking a lot about coal. He was, I mean, like he said, he was the economist for the Britain's Coal Board, which is, you know, that's a it's another one of those boards like we talked about in the last episode that try to manage a section of the economy and and fail at it. But he was he was involved with that, and that's you know being the economist for a, a nationalized coal board is a very 70s occupation. It doesn't exist anymore. So when you start reading this, it's sort of a, oh, what are we getting into? And we knew it was going to be a liberal book or a, a book from the left, but there are it, it's it's cited enough in conservative books that I thought there'd be something to it. And there is, as we'll find. But uh, I think this first part is uh, not, not of great value. So when I first got it, started as a staffer in Congress in the early 2000s. This, I think this, this kind of matched a little bit more where, where the Democrats were. I mean, today it's all about climate change, but before climate change, it was very much sort of in this vein. And here's a little bit. He says, if we squander our fossil fuels, we threaten civilization. But if we squander the capital represented by living nature around us, we threaten life itself. The proposition to replace thousands of millions of tons of fossil fuels every year uh, by nuclear energy means to solve the fuel problem. Actually, let's hold on nuclear energy because he has he has a long tirade uh, about that. Yes. He says, is it is it plausible to assume that world fuel consumption could grow? The rich are in the process of stripping the world of its once-for-all endowment of relatively cheap and simple fuels. It is their continuing economic growth which produces ever more exorbitant demands with the result that the world's cheap and simple fuels could easily become dear and scarce long. And very scarce sarcastically, he says, well, but then again, there may be simply enormous and unheard of discoveries of new reserves of oil, natural gas, or coal. But he's basically saying, what kind of idiot would think of that? <laughs> Believe that. <laughs> right. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And I mean, even when he was, uh, even when he was uh, writing this book, there was enough coal reserves, known coal reserves to last you know, 200 years. So when it comes to coal, I mean, there's essentially as much as we ever want to use. And of course, since then with, uh, huge technological advances in hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, the, the oil reserve or oil and natural gas reserves have just exploded. I mean, we have, again, we have a hundred years worth of natural gas available to us now. And that's the thing. We never really ran out of any fuel in human history. We, right. As it got scarce, we looked to something that was that had now become cheaper. You know, I mean, when we used to, everything used to be powered by wood or water power, uh, but we don't do that anymore because we figured out coal and that was pretty cheap. But as either the environmental laws or natural scarcities come into play, I mean, even a hundred years ago, uh, Britain switched their ships to oil, which was a big deal because they had coal and they didn't have oil, so a lot of people were questioning it. But it made sense to, at the time because oil was easier to transport and it was cheaper as it was being discovered in the Arabian Peninsula, and, you know, just barely under the ground, easy to get up. And, you know, as we approach peak oil, supposedly, you know, then we then natural gas and, you know, it we don't run out of things. We uh, sometimes they get too expensive to bother getting the last bits, but we've always found a way to get something else afterwards. Again, it's like we were talking about last week how the, the industrial revolution was going to put everyone out of work, and you know each each phase of it was going to well, this is the one, this is the one that's going to make everyone jobless. The robots are going to run everything. Never happens. 
It's weird that people keep prophesying doom in the same ways, generation after yeah. generation. He doesn't really get into overpopulation that much, but that was also a big issue in the 60s and 70s. People thought we were going to run out of food because there are just too many people. And populations continue to go up, but food production has gone up even faster. <laughs> you know, because because we're smart people and we figure things out and we have an incentive to figure things out you know like if you can figure out a way to feed more people on the same land you make a lot of money mm-hmm. and people have he did get into it a little bit though i mean this malthusian argument of too many people he's in in the land use uh, chapter he said mm-hmm. the earth is now much more densely populated there are no new lands to move to is the land merely a means of production or is it an end in itself i mean it, so there are no new lands to move to it, on its face, that's just so nonsensical. I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe that was true in in England. I don't know. Although there's a lot of country in England, yeah. it's certainly not true in America. I mean, it's certainly not true in Canada. I mean, it's certainly not true in China. I mean, there's there's room left for people. And in a later chapter, of course, uh, he's very critical of of big cities, and we'll, we'll get to this. But anything big and big cities, he's critical of because people will move from the the rural areas into the city and then it's overpopulated. But of course you're like, but I thought you said there wasn't enough land. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is this, there's a, a, it's kind of a quasi mystical attachment to land here, but he doesn't quite get into the, the Berkey and conservatism of place that we're used to hearing it. it here. It's more like, like we evolved with land that land has a, it, he doesn't mention God or anything like that, but it's, it has that feel. Um, and he never quite explains it, you know, but, I kind of, it's a vibe, you know, it's not really a theory or anything you can prove, but attachment to the land is something that people can relate to in a way. Um, what you do with that feeling, you know, could be good or bad. It could mean you, you take care of the place you're from, you know, you, you make your land prosperous and don't pollute it. Those are all good things, but it could also mean, I mean, hating cities, it doesn't make sense. And also, yeah, about running out of land, I, if if you ever have a chance to drive across this country, yeah, drive I eighty. I know you have. I've, I've done it too, and it's yeah, there's a lot of land in this country, and like you said, Canada too. I mean, there's vast, vast, and not barren wastelands either. They're you know fertile farmlands, you know, well watered, good climate. It's it's a huge place, and we're small people. It's we can fill it in, but I think part of it part of his uh, attack on urban life is, is this idea of connectedness and he kind of doesn't like it. He, this, this uh, paragraph stood out at me. He said the cultivation and expansion of needs is the antithesis of wisdom. It is also the antithesis of freedom and peace. Every increase of needs tends to increase one's dependence on outside forces over which one cannot have control and therefore increases existential fear. Only by a reduction of needs can one promote a genuine reduction in those tensions, which are the ultimate causes of strife and war. Here he's talking about the uh, the peace equals prosperity prosperity equals peace argument, which I I think he's right to reject. Lots of prosperous countries fight each other, uh, and I mean World War II was among prosperous nations. You know they all they all fought each other anyway, but that is sort of like what what um, urbanization and industrialization has done to society is increased prosperity, and it's made mostly people's lives better. We've read many books about the sort of dislocation and, and disconnectedness that follows all of the the tumult of the industrial revolution and that's he gets into that and that's not wrong but to sort of say, to say that interdependence increases fear i i don't know if that's true i think that's it's a weird anti-community kind of way of looking at things and 
it doesn't really explain it, but it's it, you you kind of see a, what could have been a fork in the road for conservatism, let's say, because I think we've all had these kind of thought experiments like or you know wondered why isn't it that's why aren't conservatives more concerned about about conservation and mm-hmm. and I think I think some are, but you can see kind of where there was a fork in the road because some of what he's arguing, I mean, when you and I started this book, we weren't a hundred percent sure whether it was a conservative or a liberal book. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm still, he's, he's definitely of the left, but I wouldn't call it liberal, but, uh, but yeah. you can see some strains of some, I guess what we could consider kind of conservative environmentalism, but it's kind of like the localism doesn't need to be so big, like stay to your community. Uh, let's not rely on, on, on China for our imports. Let's, uh, let's stay close to home. Let's tend our own garden. Let's not use up all of our resources. I mean, that where, where Republicans or conservatives are on, on oil and gas production versus Democrats. I don't, I'm not sure that that was an inevitable, inevitable sort of divide. You could, you could see a world in, in which, a fifth dimension where Republicans were or conservatives were very much in favor of, of conservation and Democrats were very much in favor of like, let's use it up because it's cheaper for the poor or whatever. Yes, that's true. In Roger Scruton's book, he talked about this, uh, that we read a few episodes back about how there is a sort of, you know, a pride of place, you know, the uh, wanting to keep your, your homeland prosperous and clean and good and a nice place to live that could really line up with the kind of, uh, conservation as opposed to environmentalism. Yeah. You know, I mean, they overlap, but there's a, there's a different feel to that. You know, the idea that we're less interested in preserving a swamp, although some of them are necessary, but you know, pre- I, I think most conservatives would say that national parks are good, you know, and yeah, you know, there's, there's it's good to have beauty spots and places where nature, where you can learn about nature, places where you can hunt and fish and camp and hike I think I think that's where you see the crossover in 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 the political realm. We call this the the hook and bullet crowd. But you know the those who are hunters and anglers, a lot of them are pretty darn conservative. But when it comes to conservation and and uh, having access to land and uh, using uh, you know resources, funding the Department of Interior and so forth, they're very much in in kind of that conservationist camp. You wouldn't call it liberal. But it's not entirely like what we would consider conservative either, kind of the middle ground. Yeah, and that, that kind of lines up too with the way the Soviet Union dealt with environmental issues, which was to not care about them at all. Because what they wanted, to, <laughs> they wanted to do is industrialize a very rural and, and fairly backward country immediately. So they're digging everything up. They're you know burning it. They're building everything everywhere, dumping everything wherever. And China does this now too. I mean, maybe a little less, but they're they don't care. You know they. They want to catch up with America. They want to catch up with the West. And whatever has to suffer, whether it be their people, whether it be culture, whether it be the land, the water, they don't care. You know, I mean, they were wearing the mask in Beijing before COVID-19 because their air is so so bad. (laughs) And they just, you know, got factories going all the time and they don't, you know, we at least try to filter some of that stuff out when we have factories. They don't care. Because that's that makes it harder to produce. It makes it more expensive. They just pump it out. So I, you know, that in that, in that way, you could really say, it's like you were saying, there could be easily a parallel universe where, where the uh, conservation is a right wing issue. Um, but I think also what Scruton said is some of the like far out 
you know, wild green stuff about we've got 18 months to save the earth. We can't do anything. You, you, we've got to all move into tiny houses, you know, back to nature. It, it's so far out that I think it just it pushes us by reaction to say, this is all fake. Who cares? You know, and that's not the right response, but it's it's it's, it's sort of a natural tribalist response uh, to, that people are going to have because when the other side gets extreme, it just just turns you off the whole subject. And, well, you see, you see the kind of the left wing ideology coming through. It's this, it's kind of this idea of of nature as religion. You know, it's uh, it, humans have have you know desecrated the land. If 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 it weren't for humans, then then nature would grow and and be as beautiful as it it was always meant to be. Uh, even though you know they wouldn't believe in God or any <laughs> or faith right, right. or right, right. or any meaning, but somehow there's meaning here. But the idea that it's uh, it was the introduction of humans that that actually destroyed everything, and and uh, it's where you get kind of the most extreme. Where I mean, you and I have both seen this, uh, you know, on Twitter, however many times, but uh, arguments being made about how it's actually immoral to have children or the other day oh, I was yeah. listening to a podcast where they were really questioning, like, is it moral to have children? And I, I that's just such, such dumbass crazy. I can't get wrap my head around it, but <laughs> yeah, sometimes I hear that stuff and it's so crazy. I think, well, I wish the Democrats would just run on this because it's so nuts that it, it makes whatever else we're pushing seem very sane by comparison. But at the same time, if they push it hard enough, people will start to believe it. I mean, we've seen, a lot of nutty ideas like critical theory start to catch on with people who don't really understand it or know what it's about, but they hear the people they like talking about it. So they say, well, yeah, that's good. The guys who, the guys who are against it are all bad. So it must be good. Right. Right. So <laughs> maybe I shouldn't get what I wish for, but it's, but sometimes when they're, when they're that crazy, uh, I'm like, yeah, go for it. lead with that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so he's uh, like I said at the beginning, at the very beginning in the intro, economic growth to him is anathema too. He says economic growth, which from the standpoint of economics, yeah, the economics as a profession, has no discernible limit. Must necessarily run into, but he said he argues must it must actually necessarily run into decisive decisive bottlenecks when viewed from the point of view of the environmental sciences. Materialism does not fit into this world. He's he's very anti-capitalist because it contains within itself no limiting principle while the environment in which it is placed is strictly limited. The idea of unlimited economic growth more and more until everybody is saturated with wealth needs to be seriously questioned on at least two counts. First, the availability of basic resources. And second, the capacity of the environment to cope with the degree of interference implied. After a while, GDP refuses to rise any further because of a creeping paralysis of non-cooperation. Now, part, uh, I, I'm reading through this and rolling my eyes the whole time, but there is a point to be made that he, he actually, I don't think he actually understands the point he's making, but there is a good one. And it's not that we're going to run out of resources to, uh, to continue economic growth. I, I just, I just disagree with that. And I think time has shown that that's just, yes, there are finite resources, but we're also as, uh, as a species pretty darn resourceful when it comes to figuring out a, a second step. And I mean, frankly, that's the whole basis behind these these big and bold Green New Deal type ideas is like, you know, we can we can harness the sun or, you know, harness the wind or whatever. But in any event, 
uh, I think there is a point to be made there, which is that our civilization, uh, the sort of American society is heavily reliant on economic growth. And actually Western societies are heavily reliant on economic growth. We see what happens, you know, even in a short time when, uh, when kind of economics come to a crawl or things don't grow anymore. I mean, it's, it's civil unrest. That's what they what they have in a, a number of uh, Middle Eastern countries. You know, in Iran, it's, it's civil unrest because the oil sanctions here in America during COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know how to describe what happened last year other than a primal scream by um, by people who were stuck inside, who weren't, you know, living the type of fulfilling lives that they wanted to live. And we are pretty reliant on economic growth because what happens, you know, someday, like Japan, things are going to start to slow down and eventually start to contract because the the world population contrary to these malthusian arguments is actually uh set to shrink in the coming years and you know china is going to start in in the next 50 years is going to start shrinking by a huge margin and in the next 100 years like the us is it will be shrink well shrinking as well so is mexico by the way so when it comes to uh, uh immigrant pop we're actually not getting as many Anywhere near as many uh, Mexican immigrants as we have in the past, partially because they're growing older, and they're not, you know, they're they're not, you know, young and and brave and uh, that the population. So, I mean, what's actually happening is we will peak uh, economically, and uh, what does that mean for maintaining order and peace in the civilization? I mean, in China, it's much worse because they have so many men uh, compared to women. You know, like one point. Mm-hmm two men for every every woman or something like that and so uh what's going to happen when when it starts to contract and shrink which it will and so there is a point to be made there although i don't think that's the, that's not where he was going but it is something i've thought about quite a bit yeah what what happens when we get to that you know is japan the future for the rest of the west i mean not that not that they're the west but they kind of are you know it, yeah um is that what Europe's going to look like in in a few years and America after that? Yeah, I mean Europe is already contracting, we know that. It's it's already shrinking. So their populations are shrinking if it wasn't for sort of African immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh their their indigenous populations or whatever the uh France French <laughs> yeah. are uh there's fewer of them now than there were 10 years ago. So Yeah. Now one point that um Schumacher does make that I, I here's where I thought it started to feel more conservative is he, he he's an economist but he's talking about how economics has taken over every other discipline and I, th- I feel like that's true sometimes I, I think whenever we hear an argument some, sometimes for some new program or something it, well it's going to cost more but you know economically it makes sense because we don't spend on this we, you know, we heard this for Obamacare it was going to be cheaper somehow to, to spend trillions you know but that's not the argument you would used to have heard. It would have been more about it's right to do it or it's wrong to do it. I think economics really taken over a lot of uh, a lot of politics. I think especially from the progressive side, it used to. I mean, sometimes on our side too, from the more libertarian type conservatives. But it has the feel of certainty. You know, it feels like a science. Like you know, like you can prove things by it. Although we're dealing with human reactions to stimuli, which is always different. It's 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 a lot of psychology in it, but I I, I did not expect Schumacher as, as a professional economist to talk about 
there's too much economics nowadays. I found that fascinating too, and it really made me wonder, like, what is, what is his history? Because he finishes, we can talk about this in a second. Finishes the book by making an argument for socialism, um, but yet he he'd spent his his career as a professor of economics. It's kind of uh, there's definitely like a, an element of self-loathing, but yeah. It, it yeah, it does make me wonder how he comes to that. I mean. His understanding, though, of economics was he, like you said, I mean, he he was the chief economist for the National Coal Board, you know, like, you know, the, the Ministry of Coal or whatever, and uh, which is a central planning organization, kind of like what we've uh, kind of ridiculed a little bit with that this happens with uh, dairy uh, here in America. But by and large, we're pretty free, but um, free market. But it does make you wonder, cause he doesn't really get into he has he has a number of tirades about uh, about using up resources, and I guess maybe that's his fundamental um, disagreement with uh, with economics as a profession. But I, I personally totally agree with you, and I and agree with the the sentiment that that economics is it is that's the serious social science, right? The rest of them are trying to be like economics. And so I, I even remember as a political science major in school that there was just such a heavy emphasis on math, which never made any sense to me at all because yeah. politics and math are just, they're worlds apart. And I don't know what math can tell us really. Uh, polls, yes, okay, I get that. But, um, you know, like let's let's run a regression analysis to try to understand this, you know, like the George Floyd movement or something. I mean, that's just nonsense. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us anything, but, but there's a, there's been a strong desire and maybe, maybe it's waning, but I don't think so. If you wanted to get a PhD in political science these days, I mean, you pretty much need to be an econ double major or a math major because that's, that's known as like the more serious and, and in, even in our media with reporters and so forth, we'll take you much more seriously if you're an economist because there's math behind it. Yeah. Are you a journalist? Mm data journalist oh well yeah that's that's the serious yeah i when i took political science courses i, I had the same thought i said you know even if even if this math explains what happened in the last election it doesn't explain what's going to happen in the next election <laughs> it's gonna be different people running with different issues different world events i i i guess there's there's something to it but you're you're dealing with opinions you know millions of them there's i don't i don't think a bar graph is going to get it done. But another, another beef that Schumacher had with economists is, is the way they perceived of uh, humanity itself. He says, economists have an easy way of dealing with them. They divide all human activities between production and consumption. Anything we do under the heading of production is subject to the economic calculus. Anything we do under the heading of consumption is not, but real life is very refractory to such classifications because man as producer and man as consumer is in fact, the same man who is always producing and consuming at the same time. I, I, that feels a lot like anti-corporate Republicans that you hear or anymore. Yeah. You know, it's saying we've looked too long at what's best for the consumer while completely ignoring the fact that people also have to produce yeah. to make, to some, to make a living. Somebody's producing something. Some of us aren't. Some of us are just producing uh, paper, but you know, there's, for an economy to work, some of those consumers are also producers. And should we have an economic policy? Well, should we have an economic policy at all? Is that is a debate among conservatives? But should we have one? 
should it matter, you know, should it focus just on bringing down costs for consumer goods? And, uh, you know, because that's what outsourcing has done. All of that stuff that went to China is cheap as hell. You, you know, I mean, that that's why people have been buying it. Has that been good for us? I guess it depends where you stand. For a lot of people, it's 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 if you were in the business of producing the thing that is no longer produced here, the fact that you can now buy it cheaper doesn't amount to a heck of a lot. So I, I, I felt like Schumacher's point was maybe speaking more to conservatives these days than than it was in the 70s. I think that's right. But of course, it is it is true that I think more traditional, like labor-oriented Democrats who have, have long had a focus on, well, this isn't good for workers. This is a giveaway. We're going to lose our factory and that sort of thing. And, and all that makes sense. I think you're right, though, that Conservatives are coming around to that to that way of thinking. He has this chapter on what he calls Buddhist economics. <laughs> yeah. And he says, uh, the Buddhist function of work to give man a chance to utilize and develop his faculties, enable him to overcome his ego-centeredness by joining with other people in a common task, and to bring forth the goods and services needed for a becoming existence. And that really struck me as along the lines of what you just said is that's a more conservative view of the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, uh, one of his, one of his, uh, chief objections to, to international trade and to bigness in general is that it, sometimes it, it leaves out the, the man and for traditional labor Democrats, the problem would be jobs. But for him, it seems to be a little bit more that a little bit more of a conservative view and that, what what we're losing is we're not giving this this father or whatever a chance to develop his faculties and provide for his family or whatever and there's something more to work this is some an argument that we've made billions of times on on our podcast of kind of our uh the reason we reject the whole universal basic income conception is it it kind of ignores this element of of kind of a, a human being you know uh, people need work they need they need opportunities to to create and to develop and and uh, to do a job and have the satisfaction of a job well done at the end of the day and uh, he calls that uh, buddhist economics but it's also but yeah i mean here's an example of him he doesn't quite it, this book isn't quite liberal because uh, because he d- he does have a different view of one of the reasons he wants things to be small is he wants he wants the community to be a little bit more tight knit and, and depend a little bit more on each other, and uh, we we want to have more opportunities for fulfilling work and uh, can't quite get that in a factory or whatever. Right, and and I think that that chance, <clears throat> what he said, the chance to overcome ego by joining a common task that especially is something that we don't hear because that's sort of that kind of lines up with what. Uh, Tim Carney talked about in his book about how work sort of regular work trains you to live a regular life, you know, showing up at the job every day, you know, punching in on time, doing the work gets you ready for being sort of a head of household, you know, a father, a husband, because it's, it's, you have to do this task every day. You can't just not show up one day. And that's how it is when you have kids. You can't just, you know, be absent mm-hmm. and expect everything will be fine. People are depending on you, uh, but the, that's that's hard to get thrown in if you never had any responsibility before. If all of a sudden you've got a pregnant wife or a pregnant girlfriend, so oh, I, I don't know anything about this. I don't know how to do anything. But I mean, none of us know how to raise 
a kid until we have one. But you can at least, by working on a regular basis and being a part of that that rhythm of life, you you can get used to the idea of being responsible, having having tasks that need to get done and, and getting them done. And that's that gives you that sense of accomplishment and confidence to lead into family life and to make you better at family life. I, Carney went into that a lot. I, that's not what Shoemaker is saying exactly, but I think he's talking about it more on a community basis, you know, a common task, like Amish barn raising or something, you know, like we're all going to come together and, and get this barn up. Yeah, and That's cool. Yeah. That's, that's important. That's good for communities too. I'm not, not downplaying that, you know, helping your neighbors, uh, like Gracie Olmstead talked about that a lot. And I, I, I think that does bring communities together when you actually need each other and you come through for each other. But I think it's way more common than it's important for a, for a family because most of us don't have a barn that needs raised, but we do need somebody to pay the mortgage. Yeah. So I, I think that that part of this Buddhist economics isn't especially Buddhist. It's just not, it's, it's not liberal economics. Yeah. I think that's right. And he goes a little bit further because he says that, I mean, he he talks about it in a different way, but basically what he's getting at is international trade and the big market economy destroys freedom by making everything extremely vulnerable and extremely insecure unless conscious policies are developed and conscious action taken to mitigate the destructive effects of these technological developments. Now, what may, that made me think of the COVID situation where there's a supply chain and it's still it's still being... Uh, you know, under under stress, uh, a worldwide supply chain. We did find out in America what what it means to get parts from from other parts of the world. I mean, I'm trying very hard to buy a four wheeler right now, and they're just none available. <laughs> they're not being shipped, and uh, there's a there's a backlog, and and we've had that for all kinds of goods, and it's one of the reasons where we've got this. Uh, huge inflationary effects for all kinds of goods. But at the same time, I think about, so you're like, okay, yeah, that, uh, you're, you're right. You, you do become vulnerable because there was a, a while there that fresh fruit was having, was getting a difficult, having a difficult time getting to America. I mean, we're, we didn't have a lot of uh, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables during the winter time, uh, you know, relative to what we normally do because, because the shipping and shipping and the, uh, supply chain was kind of shut down Mm -hmm. and you're kind of like, Oh, I guess we are kind of vulnerable. But of course the trade-off is we also find out like, Oh yeah. You know, when it's winter here, it's still summer in Guatemala and they can send the, whatever it is, uh, fruit or avocados uh, up to America. So, so there's that part, but then also what made me really made me think about the supply chain for, the vaccines because that's all globally sourced as well. So, yeah, I mean, what he's really giving up is okay. Yeah. It, we we're less vulnerable, but we also have less access. I mean, literally we wouldn't have a, a, a life-saving COVID vaccine if it weren't for worldwide supply chains. So. Yeah. There's the materials and also just the, the communication between scientists, the know-how, the, the, uh, none of that comes about. And, that's so that's so true with so many of the disruptions of the industrial age is that they upset the apple cart in a lot of ways and that's not to be brushed aside but there's so much good that came out of it i mean i mean forget vaccines half of modern medicine wouldn't exist without the sort of concentrations of of wealth and knowledge that happened in 
you know, big cities and universities. And, you know, if we, if every scholar was studying in his own village, how much would get done? I mean, you, you know, you'd have to wait for an Isaac Newton, you know, which doesn't come around every, every century, you know, and right. he, he kind of studied off by himself up at Oxford uh, during a plague year and came up with a lot of stuff that was standard for centuries until Einstein. But we don't, you don't get that anymore because you don't have to. You know, people can talk to each other and, and, and make their ideas better. We can share ideas over this podcast. I mean, yeah. the computer is globally sourced. The microphone is globally sourced. I mean, this wasn't made in somebody's tool shed. I mean, there are rare earths uh, mater- materials in, in every one of these products. So I think probably Schumacher would say, well, we don't need them. Now, all that stuff is... It just uh, clutters your life and makes things more complicated than they need to be. So we'd be better off without them. I don't know if he would say that. It seems like he might. Yeah, he might. I mean, that seems like increasing our needs, right? Like, which he is definitely against. So how does it end? You know, what's how, how? What do we do with all of these these essays? Well, for Schumacher, it involves a lot of nationalization. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he seems to think. You know, small-scale enterprises, uh, private ownership, he says, is natural, fruitful, and just. Um, you get up to medium scale, mm, starts to get problematic. And then in large-scale enterprise, private ownership is a fiction for the purpose of enabling functionless owners to live parasitically on the labor of others. It's not only unjust, but also an irrational element which distorts all relationships within the enterprise. So... That's not quite full communism, but it's pretty close. It's, yeah. it's communism, but you can have like, you can have a corner store, maybe. You can have a fruit stand. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty extreme. And part of it, he says, excess profits should be avoided. Yeah. And there should be a statutory obligation to serve the public interest. I mean, this is just so like laughably naive. I'm reading through this and I'm like, well, you had to, I mean, you think seem like a thoughtful guy, and then and then what you're saying is what we need is we we if it as long as it says it in statute that it needs to serve the public interest, then you know it will or whatever. You got to make a law that says everybody has to be nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we know a little more about the failure of communism now than they did then, but I don't know if he went to the Soviet Union. It wasn't a tourist spot. It, it wasn't great even then, and it was kind of their their high point, you know. So you you you'd think you'd see how this works elsewhere, and think, well, maybe we need a little more than just mandating that everybody serves the public interest. <laughs> what what does that mean? That you know, I mean, and that's what I liked about the book last week, uh, the Hazlitt book, is he he talked a lot about the real world. Like, here's how this will really go, and here's how this will really go with Schumacher's ideas. Uh, Nobody will do it. Uh, the apparatchiks <laughs> will use that law against people they don't like. Yep. But when somebody who's tight with the party does something not in the public interest, it will be explained to be in the public interest somehow or, or just ignored. Uh, and because they're, everything large scale will be owned by the government, uh, there'll be no major press organs to report about it. <laughs> yes, but he says, socialists should insist on using the nationalized industries to evolve a more democratic and dignified system of industrial administration. I mean, does that sound like North Korea or what? I mean, it's, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, but in 1973, it's not like they didn't know what what the Soviet Union looked like, but... One more thing that I wanted to hit before we before we close up is he he just had 
multiple tirades about nuclear power. And he says, nuclear fission is undoubtedly the most dangerous and profound agent of pollution. No place on earth can it be shown to be safe, which is just complete nonsense. I mean, it's not going to, I mean, we don't want to dump it in the water. And he had a, he had like several pages about how terrible it is to dump it in the water. And Hey, look, I totally agree with that. Let's not, (laughs) let's not do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you that. Yeah. (laughs) But it's been stored on site, you know, because uh, Yucca mountain, uh, was delayed for so many years and and now is is has the whole idea has just been been tossed but so what it's meant is that the nuclear waste has been stored on site for all of our nuclear reactors and there's no problems i mean yeah it's going to last a long time as far as like in but it's in these tubes and it's not hurting anybody and it's fine (laughs) yeah the reason i bring this up is because i i just I'm so, I'm sorry to sound so partisan here, but I just don't have much patience for a conversation about about climate that doesn't involve like getting serious about yeah we need nuclear power. I mean that's that's unless we invent something and we probably will someday after you and I are dead. But between now and then, if you want to f- lower emissions to anywhere near the level of the Paris Accords, nuclear has to be the answer and. Uh, I, I just don't have a lot of patience for any any conversations that that don't take that seriously. I don't know. No, I'm with you. I mean, because that's that's how you, I think you know the serious environmentalists nowadays from the from the uh, the emotional environmentalist. Yeah, <clears throat> because the emotional environmentalist hates nuclear, hates coal, hates oil, hates you know hates all of it. But somebody who who looks at it doesn't even have to really be a scientist, but somebody who understands the nature of, of scientific inquiry can 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 look at our pretty amazing run of success with nuclear power. I mean, the worst one ever in Chernobyl was, was bad, but you listen to the way people talk about, I mean, people on, on, on the left talk about how many people are being killed because we're burning coal. How many people are being killed because we're burning oil. And if those numbers are true, then, then they're, they're criminal for not getting into nuclear. Power. <laughs> yeah. It's a way. So, all right, maybe, maybe don't build it on the fault line. Like they did in Fukushima. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I can see that, but we don't have a lot of fault lines in America. Just, just keep it off the West Coast, and you're mostly okay. There's a couple of hot spots, you know. Maybe don't build it in a place that is full of natural disasters. That's, that's a reasonable thing. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not going to brush my teeth with nuclear waste, but I think there's, there's definitely something short of that that we can say, yeah, you can store it safely. You know, you can store it away from people in on site, like you said. I liked Yucca Mountain. I thought it was a good idea, but it looks like it's not going to happen now. Yeah, it's not a serious conversation if you're not actually looking at that and saying this is a... If you're concerned about carbon especially, I mean, he really wasn't because that wasn't a fad yet, but if you're if you're concerned about carbon, it's zero carbon in, in a nuclear reactor. Right. Nothing. Nothing. Right. It's, like a, it's like a solar panel in terms of its emissions. And it works when it's cloudy. So I I don't know. Yeah, that that was that was a weird rant, and it was it was very. Uh, I, when he started talking about nuclear, I was hoping he was going to be a little more futurist about it. Like, oh, one day everything will be running on. <laughs> yeah, this. yeah, no, that's forget, what I expected. Yeah, <laughs> forget coal; it's going to be great, you know. And no, <laughs> it was it was downright uh, fear mongering. All right, final thoughts. Well, look the uh, the Times Literary Supplement called this one of the most influential books of the late twentieth century. And I'm sure it was. Uh, I think a lot of it feels 
outdated now because of it. But the, the left has moved on and they're, you know, into weirder, newer environmentalism that he's not talking about. But some of his other issues, when he's talking about the role of economics, the chapters on education were interesting too. We didn't have a chance to get into that, but just about how education should be partially about learning values, not just about learning how to do stuff. That A lot of this does align with some strands of conservatism. It's worth reading. It's not going to you're not going to nod your head with every page, but it is uh, interesting, well-written, uh, challenging, weird at times, but uh, uh, overall, I- I'm glad we read it. Yeah, so I am going to disagree with you a little bit because I-, I think I'd pretty much skip it if I was, <laughs> if I was a All listener. Right. Uh, I think, you know, he makes some interesting points, but uh, but not well, and most of the book it just feels so irrelevant and and like you said the left has moved on so uh i'm glad i mean hey look it's listed on the on like you said uh some list of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century so that's why we picked it up and i'm sure it was influential among a certain crowd when it was written i i would say it's uh it's kind of obsolete at this point but hey we have different views on this all right that's schumacher catch us next time